Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we're going to be referencing a lot in Romans chapter 1, uh, but we will also, uh, pretty much throughout this next series, we will be um, all over the place in the scriptures. Um, and, and you'll see why as I kind of explain a little bit more of that. Um, but just a couple of quick things. Um, we are, as I said, starting a new series. Uh, we just finished up a series in John chapter 15 where we called it Abide. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons why I bring that up is because throughout um, kind of the way we, we structure and the way we calendar our sermon series is you'll kind of see different rhythms that we do throughout the year. Um, and so those rhythms are going to look like books of the Bible. Um, so we like to preach expositionally, which means we go um, through Scripture word for word um, because we don't want uh, to be a church in which I'm just kind of off to the side thinking, what would be a great idea in order to preach? And then how can I grab Scripture and just kind of throw it in there and mix it in um, in order to really um, kind of fluff up the agenda of actually what I think would be great? Um, and so in order to kind of steer clear of that, um, we do series that are that are heavy in books of the Bible. Um, that's why in the Abide series, we actually took three months and just sat in John chapter 15. Uh, we were covering a verse to two verses um, a week throughout those months. Um, from there, last week, we celebrated our one-year anniversary um, as a church. And, and so every once in a while, we'll have kind of uh, one-off or stand-alone um, sermons. And so last week was kind of more of a vision type of sermon of uh, what is it that we are wanting to do as a church? Uh, what is it that is the mission of God? And how is the mission of God being um, channeled through the people of the district church as we uh, continue to advance the gospel in the city of Indianapolis? And what that really looks like is not necessarily what we structure as a leadership. Um, it's not what we put together and kind of package it and market it and say this is what a church is. Uh, but what we really are as a church is what's happening with each one of you in your homes, around your dinner tables, at your workplaces, at the grocery stores, um, in the, the missional groups that we have throughout the week where you're in conversations and dialogue with one another. Because the church is the body of believers, the people growing in their relationship with Christ, growing in their int intimacy with Christ, in their abiding relationship with Him, and taking that interaction and sharing it with those who don't have that interaction, sharing it with those who don't have Christ. Um, and so that's what we really preached hard last week, and the vision was, um, uh, what is Jesus doing with you individually that is advancing the kingdom of God in Indianapolis? Um, so it's not you sitting back, consumerism, just coming into a movie theater on a Sunday and saying, that was a great service, I feel better, and now I'm going to go about my week. Like, this is not just a part of your life. What we're after as a church is how can you individually, every single day, experience Jesus in such a way that your life is becoming more and more and more like him so that those that you interact with on a daily basis are getting Jesus. They're hearing it come out of your speech. They're hearing it come out of your, or, or seeing it come out of your actions. They're experiencing Christ because he's abiding in and through you. Um, and so that's kind of the vision of, of what we do as a church. And then with that, 
because we want to make sure that we stay tied to that vision. That vision is, is interwoven throughout the beliefs that we have as a church. Um, th- these are kind of what we consider like our leashes. Um, this is what we want to hold us, um, kind of give us a stake, um, kind of make sure that we as a church don't stray and don't go off because everything that we do is tied to our beliefs about who God is, our beliefs about the scriptures, our beliefs about the gospel, our beliefs about mission, our beliefs about the church, our beliefs about baptism. All of those things play into where the rubber meets the road, what we actually do on a daily basis. And so this next series that we're going to go into is not a book series. It's not a let's go through the book of Luke. Let's go through the book of Exodus. It's not one of those, um, but it will be different. And so what we're doing is basically a doctrinal series. We're calling it Believe um, because it is what we as a church believe about God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the scriptures, the church, baptism. Uh, What do we believe about communion, the sacraments of the church, the elements of that? What do we believe about um, sin and the fallen nature? What do we believe about man's response to the gospel? What do we believe about man? What do we believe about creation? What do we believe about those things? And so this will be a 15-week series where we literally walk through our statement of faith as a church. And the reason why we're doing this is because we want you to know it. We want you to have an understanding about where we land as a church so that it's not just us as a leadership making sure that we as a church are are staying tied to what the Bible teaches, but that also you as the church, as the congregants, are also holding us accountable to say, hey, we believe this about the church philosophically. Why are we doing this? when it doesn't seem to quite match up that way. We believe this about man as far as um, the creation of humans. Why then are we preaching on a series that might be something different than that? And so that's why we want to walk through this. If if you could kind of think of it... um, in terms of like just kind of walls like if you've got scripture at the bottom scripture is teaching us things and we want to dive into scripture statement of faiths um you can call them articles of confessions you can call them creeds you can call them doctrinal statements you can call them a lot of different things but basically they're the walls that keep us from being tossed to and fro from being able to believe just any other type of doctrine that other people throw out there um, because again, we want to stay tied to the truth that is prevented or that is provided to us in the scriptures. And what I mean by doctrine is basically, if you take the topic what we're going to be covering today, the topic of God. Well, if I were to just take one verse in scripture and say, out of that one verse, this is what I believe about God. Although it might be true. It could still be incomplete if I don't see the totality of what Scripture teaches about that one specific topic. And so what a doctrine is, is taking one specific topic and looking from Genesis to Revelation and researching and studying everything, every verse that alludes to that specific topic. And once you gather all that information, it then begins to observe that information, then begins to interpret that information, and puts together a belief about that specific topic. And so that's why I say we're going to be all over the place, because we're going to be dealing with, especially today, the the hardest topic, I believe, um, is just who is God. Um, 
and barely going to be scratching the surface on that one. I mean, our entire life is barely scratching the surface on who is God. Um, but we're going to be all over the place because we're literally looking at everything that Scripture, um, we're, not today everything in Scripture, but in the doctrinal statements, we're looking about everything in Scripture that speaks to a specific topic. And so... We'll have resources for you guys um, as well throughout this series, uh, different articles, different confessions, different creeds. We're not saying the statement of faith provided by the district church is the all-in-all um, perfect, holy, and righteous statement of faith that is out there um, because it was gathered about by our elders and said this is what we believe as a church. Now, we did not sit in a room and just amongst the three of us come together and say, okay, God, what do we believe about God? No, we took resources. We took resources from the Apostles' Creed. We took resources from the Nicene Creed. We took resources from the Articles of Confession from the Gospel Coalition. We took resources from Nine Marks. We took resources from partner churches that are uh, within our networks. We took a lot of those resources and kind of together gathered them um, and, and in a lot of ways just contextualized some of the language and verbiage that's used in order to fit more of our context here in Indianapolis. And we put together a statement of faith. And through that statement of faith, this is what grounds us as a church to making sure that we're staying true to what the scriptures are teaching, not what Dwayne or Josh or Jeremy or Aaron or anyone else um, wants to put before you and say, this is a great idea. Let's do this. Let's believe this. Let's trust this. Um, we don't want that. We want you guys to always see and be tied to a statement of faith. And so that's all it is. It's a collection of statements that seek to reveal what we believe through faith. Um, statement of faith finds its statements um, in the apostles' teaching and contains essential Christian doctrines that we saw in Scripture. A lot of the New Testament are even themselves statements of faith about the Old Testament. Beliefs about what the Old Testament was writing, they're interpreting, now having the revelation of Jesus Christ coming in, having the help of the Holy Spirit coming in and inspiring them to write down doctrinal statements and Christian beliefs that have been in the book all along um, the entire history for us. And so this is our own collection of what that is. And so today, um, and you can actually, you can see this on our website. If you go to the resources on our website, you'll see actually more the the about section. You'll see our beliefs um, on that. You can click on that and you'll see each one of um, the statement of faith, each one of the, the elements within the statement of faith. You can go in and literally read each one of them. The email that we send out each week is going to have the paragraph that comes from our statement of faith based on the topic for that week, so the coming one. So you can read that. We would love for you to read that. And then not only just reading that, but we would love for you to go and study as much as you can about that topic before you even get in here on Sunday. And then even in some of our dis, um, discussions um, throughout our missional groups, um, we would love for you to even pull kind of aside and have discussions about some of these things, these things especially if um, you find at times you might disagree. Because what we're not saying is, is we want everyone in this room to come and look at this and say this is all inspired scripture. Now, we'll say 90% of it is coming directly from just scriptural quotes. And so those things you have to agree with. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to put that out there. 
Um, but the things, uh, whether it's ways that we worded things, you have the freedom to disagree, but come and talk to us about that. Come and ask us why did we word it the way that we worded it, um, and so forth, especially if you just find confusion within it. So, in order for us to have a statement of faith, we have to believe in the object of what that faith is. And that's what our topic is today. Um, the object of our faith, what we believe in, is God. It's God. Simply put, we believe in God. Everything that we do from our existence, everything from our thoughts, from our actions, from creation, everything comes from God. And so that's where we got to start. In order to walk through a statement of faith, we have to begin with God. And so really the two questions that I'm going to answer today is, um, how do we know God exists? And then from how do we know God exists, uh, then moving into how then does God exist? How do we know he exists and how does he exist? In what type of form does God exist? And we'll be talking um, about the Trinity when we get to that point. But just dealing with the idea of how do we know that God exists. Some of these concepts are going to be straight from Scripture. Some of these ideas are going to come from secularism that is pulling from trying to kind of logically think around scriptural thoughts. Um, some of these are just going to be uh, blown up, out there, weird thoughts that people have. Um, and the reason why I'm kind of giving you different things is because there's a lot of people from, from the beginning of time that have been trying to answer the question, how did we get here? Why are we here? Why do we exist? And they're trying to make sense of it. They're trying to make sense of why do we have consciences? Why, why are we different than animals in that sense? Why, uh, why, do, why, why does it look like there's design in the world? Uh, why is there also chaos within the world? So everyone's trying to the, answer that question, where do we come from? And so we begin with God, um, and within that, again, want to tie it back to Scripture. And so the first thing that everyone has, and this one does come from Scripture, Romans one twenty one is the idea of this inner sense of God. Everyone, even atheists. Like the, the greatest thing that I think about atheists is I've not known someone to argue more with a being that they believe does not exist. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, like the, it, it's a group of people who have an idea about something that they devote their time and energy and resources to trying to, to, to um, cause people to believe that it actually doesn't exist. So th the majority of their life is spent arguing with nothing. It just, it just dumbfounds me. Uh, how much energy is put into that. But I think a lot of that is because it's more of an argument within themselves that there is an inner sense of a higher being. There is an inner sense of a God that is specifically causing them to have turmoil within their hearts and within their minds. And because of that, they're warring against it rather than actually believing that it doesn't exist. But all persons everywhere have a deep inner sense that God exists, that they are his creatures, that he is their creator. Paul says that even Gentile believers knew God, but did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's Romans 1.21. He says that wicked unbelievers have exchanged the truth about God for a lie in Romans 1.25. And that's implying that they are actively or willfully rejected some truth about God's existence and character that they knew. So even unbelievers, even Gentile 
unbelievers have this sense in the scriptures that there is a higher being that is within them. However, they reject it. They suppress it. They choose to believe that it actually isn't there. A lot of times people say it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. It takes more faith to believe that God doesn't exist than to actually believe that God exists. And here's the way I can best describe that to you. If you were to take this entire screen, and if this entire screen represented all truth and knowledge that ever existed, and if a belief or a doctrine is taking all truth, all knowledge that ever existed, examining it, observing it, interpreting it, and, and, and coming up with a conclusion or a hypothesis, coming up and saying that we then, after looking at everything, we now believe this to be true. Well, here's what an atheist is saying is, let's, let's just, I'll just use myself for example. Let's say if Dwayne Gibbs was an atheist, then in my lifespan, there's these little dots up here. Can y'all see, can y'all see the dots on the screen? Like these screens are actually made up of just a bunch of dots. Well, anyways, you might not be able to see them. But there's these little black dots that are all over this screen. Well, I'm 30 years old. I've lived on this earth from 1987 to 2017. Do you think there's a lot of information that's happened but outside of 1987 to 2017 that I did not have access to, that I did not experience, that I do not know? Yes, there, there's quite a bit of information. I've not read every book that exists out there. I didn't even complete a full book until after I graduated college. That's just our education system as it is. But anyways, what I'm, if I'm an atheist and I'm believing that there is no God, then what I'm saying is in my little dot of information processing, what I'm saying is... I've looked at everything that's out there and I've come to the conclusion that there is no God. In my 30 years of existence, in my history of lack of reading and information gathering, I'm believing that there is no God. It takes a lot more faith to believe that, looking at the evidence that's out there, than it is within my 30 years of life to experience somebody sharing with me the gospel of Jesus Christ to looking back and saying there was a man who lived a couple thousand years ago that he died on the cross, that there is witness evidence in, in a book that was written by humans as well, witness evidence that he rose from the grave as well. It takes more faith to say that that didn't happen than to just believe that it did happen. And so we think about this. There's an inner sense in every single one of us that when, we're, when we are exposed to the gospel, when we're exposed to someone saying that God exists, every single one of us have an inner sense that that is true. However, the scriptures also recognize that some people deny this inner sense of God and even deny that God exists. Psalms 14, 1 um, and 53, 1 says, It's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. It says it's the wicked person who first curses and renounces the Lord. And then in pride, repeatedly thinks that there is no God. This is scripture just telling us over and over and over that there are going to be people who say there's no God. And it's just foolish to say that. It's foolish because we are created the way that we are designed is with an inner sense that there is one there. Paul also recognizes in Romans 1.18 that sin will cause people to deny their knowledge of who God is. 
He speaks of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So when we're having conversations with people and they're not willing to come over to our side when it comes to the existence of God, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, when it comes to believing that scripture is without error, the issue isn't just the fact that we are not good at defending the faith. The issue is not the fact that we are not crafty enough in the way in which we share with them the good news. We are not messing it up. The issue is the fact that we're in a sinful world and what sin is actively doing is causing people to look at the truth that is presented to them and to look at it and say, nope, I don't want it. I don't want it. That's what sin's doing. Sin's greatest initiative is to simply divert us away from seeing Jesus. When Jesus is presented, nope, I don't want it. Because sin wants us to stay in destruction and death and separation from God. That's all sin. That's all the enemy. That's all Satan. That's all demons. That's all they're after is diverting us away from accepting and believing that the truth is the truth. And then Romans 1.20 says that those who do this are without excuse. Without excuse for this denial of God. The other side of it, that, that's anybody. A anybody and everybody have this inner sense that God exists. For believers in the life of a Christian, this inner awareness of God becomes stronger and stronger and more distinct the more that we continue to grow in the relationship with Jesus. Because let's be real. Just because you became a believer at one point does not mean that you will never go through seasons where you doubt that God exists, right? That you go through seasons that you doubt whether or not this thing's legit. You go through seasons where you actually be kind of begin to look at the facts and you're like, okay, a book that was written within the span of a couple thousand years that had more than 40 authors that are 66 books that were gathered by men and put together and, and form one Bible. Are you sure that they didn't get it wrong at some point? It takes faith to believe that God inspired and ordained and orchestrated that whole thing to pull off. So there are times that even as us as believers will doubt at times whether or not this is legit. But what continues to strengthen our faith, what continues to build up our faith, what continues to spur us on to seeing the truth and, ha and having it be revealed to us is the more and more and more that we press in and abide in Jesus and see him for who he is, the more that we press into one another's lives and share the gospel with each other, the more that we grow in the gospel, the more that we have discussions about the gospel, the more that we see what Jesus accomplished for us continues to put away the sin that still entangles us. Every single day, in a lot of ways. And so there is a growing awareness that we as believers will have to the existence of God. We don't have to have every single question answered when we come to know him. That's what faith is. Faith is believing that he is who he says he is, even though I don't, might not necessarily think that he is. Or that I still struggle at times that he is. When we get into the roles of um, the Trinity and the roles of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, like there are some things in there that are, when you look at it for face value, you're like, 
Someone had to be smoking something when they wrote this. <laughs> because it's bizarre. It's out there. But it's foolish to sinners. It's foolish to those who are perishing. It's foolish to those who are not being revealed the truths of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's important for us to press into one another the truths of the gospel every single day because it's only through that that we will continue to grow in our understanding and knowledge of who God is. Not me just walking around and saying, oh, God, I think you're like this. No, it's me being pushed back to Scripture constantly saying, no, this is what Scripture says God is like. This is who God is. We come to know Jesus Christ living within our hearts. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is Galatians 2.20. This is me growing in my awareness of God because Jesus is increasingly living out his life in my life rather than me trying to live out my life without him. Two things happen there. Every single day, our battle is, do I want to do what Dwayne wants to do or do I want to do what God wants to do? I think at times doing what Dwayne wants to do is going to bring the utmost satisfaction, but it's not. I war at times thinking that Jesus has my best interest at hand and that's the sin still in me that is wanting to war with me and say, he doesn't really know. But faith is trusting that he does know and it's laying aside and putting off my old self and saying yes to Jesus and no to sin so that I can continue to grow in my awareness of who God is. The other thing that gives evidence to God is the fact that there's nature. The world also gives abundance of evidence of God's existence. Paul says in Romans 1.20 that God's eternal nature and deity have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made clearly perceived in the things that have been made. This broad reference to the things that have been made suggests that in some sense, every created thing gives evidence to God's character and his actions. Nevertheless, it is man himself creating the image of God who most abundantly bears witness to the fact that there is a higher creator. Like when you're in a conversation with someone, just, just when you meet someone, it doesn't matter if they're a believer or a non-believer, when you meet someone and you're able to communicate with them, they're able to process information. They're able to then respond to that information. You're able to physically see that person. Like when you start to look at the design in which relationship happens, the one thing that should be just ringing off in our mind is there has to be a creator because this interaction between two people and an image of God is amazing. Like this could not happen by chance. There had to be design because of just the interaction between relationships. In addition to the evidence seen in the existence of living human beings, there's further um, excellent evidence in nature. Acts 14, 17 says the rains and fruitful seasons, as well as the food and gladness that all people experience and benefit from are said by Barnabas and Paul to be witnesses to God. So basically he's just saying anything and everything that you see in existence is declaring the testimony that God exists. 
This is another one of those things where, where it basically says that there's no one without excuse because anything and everything that we perceive had to come from somewhere. Had to come from somewhere. To look upward, David tells us this. He says, to look upward into the sky by day or by night is to see sun, moon, and stars, sky and clouds, all continually declaring by their excellence and beauty and greatness that a powerful and wise creator has made them and sustains them in order. Those are just some scriptural evidences to God. Inner sense evidence of God as well as nature evidence of God. Um, here's, here's some of the interesting things when it comes to people's arguments for um, the existence of God. And so here's where I'll pull in. Some of these are from Christian um, theologians. Some of these are from non-Christian philosophers um, at various points in history. But be, basically these are an attempt to analyze the evidence that is out there to determine whether or not there is some type of higher being. And again, these are, are argument, arguments that have been going on for um, millennia. The first one is the cosmological argument. Uh, Plato and Aristotle were, were big on the cosmological argument um, that there had to be some type of higher being. And here's what it says. It considers the fact that everything known in the universe has a cause. Therefore, it reasons the universe itself must also have a cause, and the cause of such a great universe can only be a God. Basically, their whole thing is cause and effect. If there's a cause, then there has to come from um, some type of thing that itself is a cause, a movement, an entity. So for everything to function and work the way that it is, the cause and effect there is the fact that there is or some type of God, cosmological argument. The next one is teleological argument, and it's really a subcategory of the first one. Um, it focuses on the evidence of harmony and order and design in the universe, and it argues that its design gives evidence of an intelligent purpose. Greek word for telos means end or goal or purpose. Um, since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must be an intelligent and purposeful God who created it to function this way. So they're just looking around. They're, they're just looking around at, at creation, how things work together, how things flow, the fact that there is rain that, um, and this is where you're going to tell that I did not read in science class, but the fact that there is, uh, is it precipitation, right, where it goes up and then it's in the clouds and then it comes down. Like there's system and order to that. Like, like that's not us creating that in order for that to happen. There's mitosis that happens, splitting of cells, right? Okay, splitting of cells. Like, we did not think that up in order for that to happen. There's design and order there. And so they're just looking at the evidence that they found in Scripture. And this is what I love about science. I love the fact that science is only continuing to, um, to, to explain and prove what we've been saying in Scripture all along. Like, right now, when it comes to life, and, and when I mean by life, I'm talking pro-life. I'm, I'm talking baby in the womb. Right now, science is more on our side than they've ever been in, in the history. Science is only going further and further and further into the life of a baby. At what point does life exist in conception and they're only proving our own argument? The, the evidence and data that they are constantly going into finding is constantly coming back and just turning up results that are saying it's a human. It's a life form. 
to take it in any way would be murder. So like those types of arguments when it comes to science doesn't scare me. Um, what scares me is more so when science just tries to go in and kind of recreate and do some unique things, but that's another story. The next one is the ontological argument. It begins with the idea of God, who is defined as a being greater than which nothing can be imagined. Um, this one's kind of weird. It basically says it argues that the characteristics of existence must belong to such a being since it's greater to exist than not to exist. Basically, it says, if we can think of a being that exists outside of nothing, then because we can think of that, then there must be something there. That's basically what their argument is. It's an interesting argument. The next one is the moral argument. Because from man's sense of right and wrong and the need for justice to be done, it argues that there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong and who will someday uh, meet, out and ju- meet out the justice of all people. Since we have moral consciousness, since we're able to walk up to somebody and if you were to put a gun to someone's head, there's a sense of us watching that and saying that's not right. Has to mean that that moral understanding comes from somewhere. It's not something that we just create within ourselves. Um, The last one is the the conscious argument. Um, And this is really just a a debate between the material and physical um, kind of subjective awareness. Consciousness or subjective awareness is is unlike anything we normally deal with in our material universe. Um, This is kind of think Neo and the Matrix. Like you've got, you got Neo in the physical realm, but as soon as you kind of hook him up and take him into the conscious realm, like because there is a conscious realm, then there must be something that's outside of the physical realm. And so therefore there must be something outside of the universe. And then the only argument that they would say is there has to be some type of God. There has to be some type of being that is um, creating that idea of consciousness consciousness arguments from secular culture for our existence um these are more than likely what you're going to see on history channel um at different times if you love that um just to say this if you see anything like just because it's on the history channel does not mean that it's absolute truth all right like like it's you got to remember it's a business the history channel is a business so just because they have a show about it doesn't mean that you need to like hook, line, and sink or be like, this is exactly where our existence comes from, all right? Um, so just be weary, especially even things that, that you see when they do their own Bible um, series and stuff. Just, they're about profit. Anyways, um, one is from secular culture is just that aliens are our gods. Um, they, they literally say that they just, they were out there, they sent probes to inhabitable planets, which then produced life. Um, they said, basically, we had a planet. It was an inhabitable planet. They, they sent a probe there. There was life. It flourished. And therefore, our understanding of a God form or something out there is really just tied back to aliens from other planets. These are just arguments that I found. Um, the next one is uh, simulation hypothesis. Right. Um, Basically, their understanding is our neurons are a cyber simulation hypothesis that runs by hacker gods. I'd go into that further, but I've never done drugs. So I lack the imagination to figure that one out. Um, 
But these are just some, some understandings that are out there of, of people's, people's charge to try to understand who God is and where we've come from. Only God, at the end of the day, can overcome our sin and enable us to be persuaded that he actually exists. I guess at the end of the day, when it comes to you having a conversation with somebody and sharing with them God's existence, only God can be the one to reveal himself to that person in such a way that they were to look at you and say, I believe. I believe. So don't try to have to spend so much time figuring out the best way to win the argument. Just share the gospel. Just share the gospel. Just share the story of Jesus when it comes. Like if someone wants to come at you and just combat you on the existence of God, just say, well, this is what I've seen in Scripture. This is what I believe to be true in my life. This is what the story was shared to me, and, and I look at that. I mean, how many times have someone shared a story with you that you did not witness that story firsthand, but you believe that story to be true? Belief is no different here. I was not physically there at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But John was. John ran to the tomb. John walked into the tomb. John saw the body not there anymore. John then saw Jesus when Jesus came and, and, and um, revealed himself to them in the last 40 days. John saw the scars. And John tells us in John that, that, that Jesus, that this is his testimony. In 1 John, as he's writing to um, the churches, as he's writing to his, his flock, his people that he's shepherding, he's telling them, from what I experienced, what I saw, what I touched with my hands, I ate with him. They weren't there. 1 John, 60 years removed from resurrection, they weren't there. But yet they believed because of the testimony of John. John sharing with them, this is what I saw. John sharing with them and us reading the statements that he recorded is no different than me just sharing with you a story that happened and you believing it to be true, even though you weren't there. But at the end of the day, only God can be the one to, to help us understand that. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we read, it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers has blinded the minds of unbelievers. One of the best ways that you can win an argument is by not interacting in conversation, but just separately praying for that person. Praying knowing that their sin or the enemy of this world is trying to keep them from understanding who God is and what the gospel is. And so let's pray for God to stand in and enter in and intervene in their life to keep the enemy from constantly blinding them from the truth that exists. Pray for them. Pray for them. Here's our statement about who God is. And this is where I'll get into the Trinity and finish it up. There's one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-existent, co-equal, and co-eternal. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the foundation of Christian faith and all of life. First thing I want to mention there is um, how can God be three persons yet one God? 
because that's one of the biggest arguments that we see. This gets into the idea of Trinity. How can we believe that there's one God, yet we then believe that three, there are three distinct persons, yet we believe that each of those three distinct persons are fully God? Like, you're going monotheism, you're going polytheism. Like, this sounds really weird um, in the way that we understand this. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology defines the Trinity this way. He says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is only one God. Now, this is not widely accepted. This is not a widely accepted view of God by religions claiming to be Christian. Like, there's other religions out there who claim to be Christian who do not accept this view of, of God and the Trinity. Jehovah's Witness, for example, they, they, they profess to be believers. They profess to be Christians, yet they do not accept the belief of the Trinity like what we do. They believe that there is a God, the Father, that is monotheistic, that we believe, or that they believe is tr- the true God. But then when it comes into the terms of the distinct persons, they do not believe that each of the distinct persons are fully God. Specifically, the one that they have the biggest hang-up on is Jesus Christ himself. One of the ways that we know that is in John 1.1, they take it and they just run with it by throwing in one little article in order to change the way that it reads. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, The way that theirs reads is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, we know John 1.1 especially when you get to verse 14 and that it's Jesus that it's revealed because it says the word then became flesh and dwelt among us. Their referencing of the word being a God is the fact that he is a type of God, but he is not God himself. They struggle with the idea of Jesus being fully God because he goes against what they teach. He goes against their system of working their way up. If it was free faith, then it's not going to work anymore. If it was free belief, if it was free grace, then it's not going to work anymore for their system. They believe he's a lesser type of God. They go on to define Jesus as a creative being with limited authority from the Father, but is not God himself. We see Trinity revealed in scriptures all throughout. Um, You're never going to find the word Trinity in the scriptures. Nowhere. Like Genesis through Revelation, you're not going to find Trinity there. Um, But you do find the way in which we define the Trinity all throughout. Um, Trinity literally just means tri-unity or or three-in-oneness. It's used to summarize the teaching of scripture that God is three persons, yet one God. And this is what this is where you see it. You see it in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image. There's a, there, there's a leaning there of uh, plurality, that it's not just a singular person, but that there are multiple persons that are engaged in the act of creating man in their image. We see this um, in Genesis 11:7 when he says, Come, let us go down and there and confuse their language. Isaiah 6, verse 8, he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Note the use of the singular term, whom shall I send? And then he goes to the plural term, um, who will go for us? 
Psalm 110, 1, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's very interesting that, that David is literally saying, the Lord God said to my Lord, who's also God, that I'm gonna make the enemies a footstool before your feet. So even David, from an Old Testament viewpoint, is looking at the fact that there are distinct persons within the form of who God ultimately is. Matthew 22, 41 through 46, Jesus rightly understands and explains that David's referring to the two separate persons as Lord. In the New Testament, we, we see countless examples um, We see when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here at one moment, we have all three members of the Trinity performing three distinct activities. God the Father is speaking from heaven. The Holy Spirit is descending from heaven and is resting on Jesus for the work of his ministry. At the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he tells the disciples that they should go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct pieces or three distinct persons when it comes to the idea of who God is. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in every one. Similarly, 2 Corinthians, the last verse, um, specifically 13, 14, says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's this idea that there is a God who exists, that there are three distinct persons mentioned separately. And therefore we believe it. We believe that God exists in three distinct persons, that he is in three persons. Um, the spirit is a person as we see Jesus use the term he. See, a lot of times it's easy for us to see the father and to see the son, but we kind of sometimes just think of the Holy Spirit in terms of an act of force or a power um, or, or just some type of spirit. He is a spirit, but he is a person. Jesus uses the fact that he is a person in John um, when Jesus says, but the counselor of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The fact that he uses the term he there in the Greek is a mas- masculine pronoun, a kainos, which usually one would not expect from the rules of Greek grammar. When you're talking about spirit, you're usually talking about something that's referred to as a neuter noun. It's something that's not gender specific. It's not specifically um, considered personhood, but rather is just considered something that would be common. And so for the fact that Jesus in Greek grammar gives the term he uh, ascribed to the person of the Holy Spirit provides the fact that he is like Jesus in personhood. The next thing is, so there's three distinct persons. The next thing is that each person is fully God. Um, It's almost universally accepted and understood among most monotheistic religions that the Father is fully God. Most religions, whether it's Islamic, whether it's um, Jehovah's Witness, um, would believe that God the Father is God. Where it gets muddied is then when they get into the idea of Jesus being God. 
God. Um, I was on an airplane one time with, um, with a person sitting next to me and got in conversation with them um, and learned that they were a Muslim. I ended up having a great conversation with them over about a 45-minute flight. Um, and, and we got into the idea of talking about whether or not we believed um, in the same God. Um, and, and I just simply asked. I, I said, well, how, how would you define who God is? And they said, well, we, we believe in the God of the Old Testament, um, the God of Abraham and Jacob. And, and I said, well, okay, we, we believe in that same God as well. Um, I said, but I still don't know that we actually believe in the same God because we don't just refer to the God of the Old Testament, the Father, um, in a lot of ways as the only God. Um, I said, well, where are you at with Jesus? And they said, well, we believe that Jesus is a prophet, was a good teacher. However, he's inferior to Muhammad. And I said, well, we believe Jesus to be God. I said, so if we believe Jesus to be God, do you then think that we believe in the same God? And they said, well, if you believe Jesus to be God, then we don't believe in the same God. I said, you're right, we don't. Just because we could land at the fact that we think the father of the Old Testament, the father of the New Testament, the father who is God, just because we agree that he is God, but yet don't agree that Jesus is God means that we actually don't believe in the same God. If you don't believe that the Holy Spirit is fully God, would then mean that we don't believe in the same God. Because to leave any of the persons of the Trinity out is to cease to believe in the right God. Even though you're referencing the father who is God also the true God. Up to this point, it, if the Bible only taught those two things, the fact that there is God who exists and the fact that God exists in three persons, most people could land there. It's when you then get to the last part that then says that all three persons are one God is where it really begins to kind of break down. And, and to be all honest with you, even with us, begins to kind of get uh, muddied water because there's nothing in creation that we can use to try to explain this. Like when we say God exists, yes. God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, I agree, I get that. But then to go into the fact that all three persons are one God is where it begins to get hard. And the reason why it gets hard is, if I were to tell you, well, let me back up. The reason why people have a, have a struggle with this is because they would say, well, each of those distinct persons that we're saying are God are really just manifestations of who God is. The Father is the manifestation of, of, of God at one point in history. And then he goes back. And then God wants at some point to come down and he's the manifestation of Jesus. And then he goes back. And then there's the Holy Spirit who's sent and then the Holy Spirit is a manifestation of God. But all three cannot necessarily interact at the same time and be fully God. And so what we're saying with that is they would look at me and say, okay, Dwayne, you are, you are a father. I'm a father because of Ezra. I'm a son because of those two people over there. And then at the, I'm a pastor because of all of you here. However, I'm not able to do each of those things specifically in oneness. 
I can act as a father at times, and I can act as a son at times, and I can act as a pastor at times, but I cannot differentiate those three into three different distinct persons. Does that make sense? Like, there cannot be a father, Dwayne, who is separate than Dwayne the son. Like, there is the father who is God, and there is Jesus who is God, who are distinct persons. The father is not Jesus. Dwayne the father is Dwayne the son. God the father is not God the son. This is where it begins to break down in our own understanding of how the Trinity actually works and functions because we are saying and believing that they are one, yet they are absolutely distinct and separate persons. Um, And the last thing that I want to just close out with here is don't try... Don't try to create earthly analogies for something that only God can ultimately reveal. Like, I mean, you've probably heard a ton of different analogies out there for the idea of the Trinity, um, but each of them falls short. And I'm just, I guess I shouldn't say you shouldn't use any of them. It's good at times to try. But the reality is, is the Trinity is unique to the fact that it's the Trinity. The relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as three distinct persons that are all fully God themselves is a unique thing that nothing on earth can be able to explain. People have tried. The egg, right? How many times have you heard the egg analogy for the Trinity? Has anybody heard that one before? You've got the shell, you've got the, the, the egg white, you've got the yolk, and they say they all three are an egg. I would say, well, if you just take the yolk out and set it over here to the side, would you look at the yolk and say that is an egg? No. It's an egg yolk. But if I were to pull Jesus to the side and say, that is God, absolutely, I would say that is God. The egg cannot be the egg without all three things being in and of itself. As soon as you pull them and make them distinct, it's no longer an egg. It's part of the egg. We do the same thing with, um, people have tried it with three-leaf clovers. They say you've got the three-leaf clovers. Each of the leaves represent a part of the clover. Well, same thing. If I pull a leaf off from a three-leaf clover, it's no longer a three-leaf clover. It's just a green piece. (laughs) You cannot say that is a three-leaf clover anymore. It's a part of a three-leaf clover. Same thing with trees. People have tried doing the the roots and the trunk and the branches. Like, it's still not going to work. It still breaks down. If you take the roots by themselves and just place them over here, no, no longer is it an oak tree. It's just a root from an oak tree. Any type of water. People have done the water one, the H2O one. They've, you've got the, the, the water, you've got the ice, and you've got the mist, steam. Thank you. You've got the steam. Well, there is no just oneness of water. There is no absolute water. There are just three different forms of water. But they cannot, like at no time can water itself in one form be fully Steam. It just, it falls apart. And so what we're trying to say is at the end of the day, there is a uniqueness to the Trinity that is and of itself its own thing. And we're growing in our understanding of the Trinity, but the primary way in which we're growing in understanding of the Trinity is not just meant to try to explain the Trinity to other people, but rather reveal to other people the actions and characteristics of what the Trinity is doing. What's the Father doing? What's the Son doing? 
What's the Holy Spirit doing? What is their character? How are they loving? How are they mutually communicating with one another? How are they then sharing that communication with us? How are they loving and serving one another? How are they submitting to one another? How are they interacting in community with one another? That then is exposing the way in which we interact in community with one another. That's what we really need to be spending our time with, which is what we're going to do over the next three weeks. Next week, we'll talk about the Father. Next week after that, we'll talk about the Son. Next week after that, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about each of their distinct roles, their actions, their characteristics, how they function, what their purpose and mission is, and how it then also makes them God themselves. I know this one today was very academic. It was not necessarily very preachy. That's okay at times. Some of this series might come across preachy, and other times it might just come across like I am in a classroom. And that's all right. It's all right. Not everything is meant to just be an emotional presence trying to pull it out of you. There are times where we just want to give you information about who God is and what he's doing and how he exists. And then we'll let God be the one to begin to navigate that into your minds and in your hearts as the gospel begins to just be stirred up in who you are. So we're going to enter into a time of communion here. Um, And as we enter into a time of communion, the thing that I want you to think about in this time is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a community that existed from eternity past. And what communion represents for us is the sacrifice Jesus was willing to make in order to invite us in to that community. In order to invite us in to be able to begin experiencing not just a relationship with Jesus, but a relationship with the Father, a relationship with the Holy Spirit in which the way in which they've mutually benefited each other for eternity past, the way in which they've mutually loved and cared and worshipped and adored one another, the way in which they've gloried in each other from eternity past, they've entered us into. So that we also now get to experience what that looks like. We get to experience the joy that comes from having the Father pursue and love us and wrap his arms around us, from having Jesus come and work for us in order to earn for us righteousness, in order to earn for us a place at the table in the heavenlies, in order to earn for us redemption. And to have the Holy Spirit be able to come in to that place and everything that Jesus accomplished, the Holy Spirit's bringing and breathing life into our existence. We get to have that because of what this table represents, the fact that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood for us to be brought into their community. So just think about that as we partake of communion. Let's pray, and then I'm going to have the band um, come on down front. Father, we thank you so much. Um, (coughs) We thank you that you are our Father. We thank you that you are God. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and, and all that he means to us and the fact that he 
also is God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not have a life to be able to see who you are and to be able to know your character and to be able to know what it means to be loved by you and to be pursued by you. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God as well. So God, we ask that you just continue to work in our minds and in our hearts in this time. Um, If there are things that are difficult for us to understand, God, we would pray that you would make that clear to us, make it known to us. And Father, as we go through this series, as we unpack just our beliefs as a church um, that are ultimately revolving around who you are and what your character is and what your mission is, um, God, I ask that you would stir up our affections, that you would stir up our, um, our zeal for knowledge and information, our zeal um, for the scriptures, to be able to search the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to treasure the scriptures, because they ultimately testify to who you are and what you're accomplishing and what you're doing. And so, Father, I pray, I ask, I plead, I beg, that you would move, that you would move in, in us and that you would move in our community and that we would be agents of reconciliation, that we would be taking the gospel to those who are without it and that we would be sharing with them the hope that they are so desperately longing for in the things of this world, that they would find only in you and in you alone. Father, let us worship you in this time of communion as we break the bread and as we dip it in the juice, God. Would we remember the fact that you broke your body and you shed your blood for the remission and forgiveness of our sins, enabling us to come into the community of your Holy Trinity. Father, we love you. and We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at